Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. Let me begin by quoting Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. It's clear that the Lord Jesus has purchased us in himself access into highest heaven. And it's also clear that if we are to be identified with Christ in heaven, we're also to be identified with him on earth as well. And whereas heaven receives us as its citizen in Christ, the cities of man, the age of man, rejects us. Christian, follower of Jesus, listen. We are not citizens of this world. Here we have no continuing city. We, as Christians, live under the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in a sense, His blood has been planted or painted upon the doorpost of the gates of heaven to mark our place. And there it says through Jesus Christ that here is where you will find your home. It calls to us and it says, draw near and enter in here into the most holy place because God has now established through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and His shed blood that this place This most holy place where God resides is your home. And Murray explains it this way. Heaven has received Jesus Christ and us in Him. And we belong there. That's the lesson. The blood was brought into the most holy place and it illustrates that we through Jesus Christ and His blood belong in the sanctuary of our God in the most holy place of highest of heavens. The holy place where God dwells. But you have to understand something if you accept that's true. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and you accept that through Jesus Christ he has purchased and he has actually set you in himself in the highest heaven and claimed it as your home and you've entered in with him into that place, you also have to accept the other part of this illustration. His body was taken outside of the camp. He was rejected by religious Israel. He was rejected by men. He died away from the places where men build their kingdoms and express their religious passions and He was rejected and set aside. And if we belong to Christ in heaven, we also belong with Christ outside the camp or the city of this world. In heaven, we share his honor. On earth, we bear his reproach. We go to him in both places. That's the idea. We go to him in both places. By the way, the camp that's being referred to here, and I've already alluded to this, but the camp that's being referred to in this passage, going to Christ outside the camp, is further explained in this verse 14, where it says that here we have no continuing city. The camp that we're leaving is not a broken and fallen and sinful world. Christ has actually sent us to a broken and fallen and sinful world. The camp we're to leave is the camp of religion. It's the camp of religious laws and forms and rules and ceremony. It's the camp in which people congregate together in their effort to prove their own righteousness 
and when they fail to prove their own righteousness by their own efforts is also the religion and the formulations that they put together in order to stuff or put away their consciousness of the lack of righteousness. By the way, that's what the religion of men provides for them. It provides a place where they can strive for fitness for God and where when they know they failed to and when they become aware that they're not fit for God, it also provides them a place where they can, in a sense, anesthetize themselves from their own failures to various forms and various celebrations. And human religions give people practices to both claim some form of self-appointed goodness and at the same time activities to appease their sense of failure in reaching the goal to be righteous or good enough for God. So you look at the world, actually. That's religion as a whole, but you look at the world and you look at the way the world systems are developed and how our countries are formed and how our cities are built and our societies are built, and you'll see that this is the movement that not only is expressed in religion, but it's the movement that is expressed in these societies. Actually, if you take your... We won't do it right now, but if you later go and take your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18, you have a picture of Babylon, and it is expression of the social order and the political order that rises up in the last days. In chapter 17, you have a picture of it in its religious function, in its spiritual function, and there is a religious or spiritual element to it, but the religious element and spiritual element in which men are striving to prove their own righteousness and striving to ascend and reach transcendency in their own power blends itself into chapter 18, which is a picture of its political structure and of its social structure and its commercial structure, and they all are woven together. And it's this great city in the last days. In chapter 18, we learn that in one day it will totally collapse and God will bring judgment upon it. But this is the social order of men. The social order of men is not simply commercial. It's not simply political. It's not simply social. It's inspired by his religious spirit to try to prove himself in his own power and his own works that he's righteous and good. It's driven by his own desire to bury his sense of his lack of goodness in more effort, more activity. And so around these things, cities are constructed and built up. And it's this city that we're being called away from, where men gather together and they labor and they work in order to build their towers of Babel to the sky or to the throne of God and so find their significance. And in the next moment, people give themselves over to spasms of numbing amusements so they can forget how small the tower they've built and constructed is against the untouched sky because God has not met. And we're being told to not participate and to come out from that city, to come out from that place. Listen, we're to live outside the city in which men engage themselves in these kinds of activities. We're to go out to Jesus Christ and we're to be with him instead. The world wants us to support their efforts and strategies to salvage their own reputations and save themselves. The world wants us to jump also into their dull amusements and mindless celebrations to downplay and forget that they're failing. And we're not to do either. We're to come out from that city. We're to go with Christ instead. He takes us away from these religious activities that characterize every human age. But then Christ sends us back among these same people to live among them and before them. Our security and our assurance in Jesus Christ. Our confidence of having received His full righteousness. Our identity with Him in His death for our sins and our identity with Him in His resurrection over death 
as our hope of everlasting and eternal life and we're to live in that place with that kind of confidence. Sometimes it's confusing and it's painful to figure out how to live in a city that you don't really belong to and that's passing away. I want to repeat to you, we're not to build our identity with lost people of the world by confirming or lending moral support to them in their effort to prove their own righteousness. We're not to develop an identity and provide moral encouragement to them as they seek to save themselves by their own good deeds. But we can be with these same persons when they feel the weight of their sin, in their times of brokenness, when the Spirit comes upon them and they sense their need for rescue. We can be with them as they go through the struggles and pain of life and also as they experience the common graces and joys that God gives to all. You know, the Bible says that God's goodness is meant to lead men to repentance. And God gives common grace to people that they experience and they enjoy, but the purpose of it is to turn them away from themselves and to turn to the hand that gives it. We can be with them when they're celebrating that kind of goodness and they're experiencing it. And we can celebrate it with them, but in it all, it ought to be our intent and our purpose to express as we mourn with them and as we rejoice with them that all these things should turn and fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes upon God. The problem is that most of the time human beings are in a high religious mode. They're actually acting quite religiously. You get in conversations with them and you'll find that this is the pattern of their thinking as well. I'm good enough, I'll prove myself, I'll fail and then I'll just lose myself into some occupation and make me forget. When you start seeing these things and seeing that this is the way that the mind is built up and that they're looking for your sense of support in that pursuit, well, the command and call of God to live outside that kind of structured city and that way of thinking can lead to living kind of a lonely life. You live in a world in which you can't enter into the identification with the way the world functions and the pattern that it's on and the cycle that it's pursuing and it can be lonely and you have to step outside of that kind of company but you're at the ready. You're at the ready all times to speak truth and live out truth before them and that loneliness drives you away from them but who does it drive you to? It drives you to Jesus. It drives you to the one who's the answer of all things. The one who has purchased you a greater place and has placed you in heaven itself and the one who has himself went outside of that system in that city to bear and die for your sins and you go out with him bearing his reproach and you know how you bear his reproach you bear his reproach by finding life outside of that city you find redemption outside of that city you find your rejoicing outside of the normal circles in which men rejoice you celebrate not in your own established righteousness you celebrate in his righteousness alone you say things like not unto us be glory and honor and praises but unto you be glory and honor and praises and Find yourself singing with others, a few others, but not with the course of humanity and not with men. When men work themselves up in a foment because their systems are being frustrated, because by the way, everyone's religion clashes with another man's religion. Every man seeking to somehow find greatness will find that he comes in conflict with another man who's trying to get to the same place. It becomes a battle of who's going to be the king of the righteous mountain and what you do is you step aside because it's the wrong fight. You don't engage in that fight. 
You remember and you remind yourself that you're born for another city altogether. What I've just said, by the way, is an illustration. It's an expression of our first point here, and it's this. The number one point in verse 14, here we have no continuing city. And the illustration of that or the application of that is then let's live away from it. Let's move away from the functions and the purpose of that city. I doubt that the author of Hebrews knew that within a few years of writing his letter that the city of Jerusalem was going to be set on fire, that the city and the lower city and the temple was going to be completely destroyed. I don't know. I would assume that he is making a prophetic word here, but oftentimes the prophets didn't know exactly what they were speaking of. I, for one, doubt that he knew that he was speaking specifically of that event and how it was going to be fulfilled, but there is a prophecy here. There is a declaration as he's speaking to Jews, and as you know, I believe the book of Hebrews is written to Jews in Jerusalem, that this city is going to be wiped away. The Jewish historian Josephus actually witnessed the seas of Jerusalem in 70 AD, in which the Roman general Titus came and destroyed it. And Josephus estimates at that time, and it's probably an exaggeration, that 1.1 million Jews died during the seas of Jerusalem. He also declares, and this is probably more accurate, that over 100,000 Jews were made slaves at that time, most of them who later on would die in the gladiatorial service of Rome. Titus laid waste the city. He tore it down totally, and he burned it. He ordered that everything be torn down in Jerusalem, and the only thing he, he allowed, and he asked that three towers be, would be remaining and standing, and one wall, as simply as a testament to what the city used to be. Just as a reminder, when people came upon it and they found the rubble, that they would not lose it. They wouldn't think it was just a desert that was buried, but that there was these hints and these expressions. Thanks for joining us at Bread of Life. To learn more about our work around the world, go to cpeonline.org. Or to learn about our fellowship here in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.